Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week. Katie Royfey returns to Little Atoms to talk about her latest book, The Violet Hour, Great Writers at the End. Katie Royfey is the author of several books, including The Morning After, Sex, Fear and Feminism, Uncommon Arrangements, and In Praise of Messy Lives, which we've talked about on the previous Little Atoms. Her articles have appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, Harper's Vogue, Esquire, Slate and Tin House, among many other places. And she has a PhD in literature from Princeton University and is currently the director of the Cultural Reporting and Criticism Program at New York University. And Katie's latest book, which we're going to talk about today, is The Violet Hour, Great Writers at the End. Katie, welcome back to Little Atoms. Oh, thanks so much. How would you describe what The Violet Hour is about? Well, it's a really strange project. Um, It focuses in on the final days, hours, and months of um, basically five great writers. And then it kind of flashes back to their life, their thinking about death, how they've sort of managed the subject of death, and all the people around them. So it's a really intense, focused kind of description of these, essentially these deathbed scenes. Why did you want to write it? What is it about death? Well, it's the book is about it. It sort of started when I was 12. And I write about this a little in the book. I almost died. I I stopped breathing in a taxi cab on the way to the emergency room. And the taxi driver carried me into the emergency room. And you know, they gave me oxygen. But I and I was very, very sick in the hospital for about a year when I was 12. And I I really thought that I was going to die. And I've been ever since then um, kind of obsessed with the idea of the confrontation with death. So how do we deal with the approach or the feeling or the knowledge that you're about to die? So I wanted to choose, I didn't want to write about myself, obviously, I wanted to choose some people who I thought their imaginations were so kind of big and vast and fierce that they could put that confrontation into words in a way that most of us can't. And Although you said you didn't want to write about yourself in the whole, you do mention yourself. Let's talk about how perhaps you've experienced death yourself before we go on to the writers. Well, I this sort of the subject reignited itself in my mind when my father died. He died very suddenly of a heart attack. 
And I kind of kept imagining and reimagining this scene. And part of it, you know, I never got to have kind of that last conversation that people that I've now discovered nearly everybody fantasizes about having with a parent before they die, where things are sort of resolved and you ask all the questions you couldn't ask. So I really don't know what he was thinking in that moment. And, and my mind kept kind of casting back to it, like, what did he, did he know he was going to die? You know, all of that. And so it was when he died, I started thinking about this project again. And obviously, I couldn't talk to him or ask him any questions. So I sort of began to research and really deeply, and I would say kind of obsessively research these writers. So it was, it did come out of this sort of personal experience. And I think a very common one of a parent dying and the sort of, you know, most of the time we don't think about death and we spend a lot of energy kind of pushing it out of our minds. But then when someone close to you dies, you're forced to think about it and to kind of come right up against this really terrifying subject. And obviously, there's been a lot of writers that have died over the years. Why <laughs> these five? I mean, I know you've just described some characteristics that these ones have in common. But again, you could say that about a lot of people. Why these five in particular? Well, you know, I could have gone on and on. And there were many other writers that I wanted to include. And I thought of including and I started to research. And there were a lot of people I wanted to write about William Blake. I wanted to write about Virginia Woolf. I wanted to write about Balzac. I wanted to write about Primo Levi at one point. I wanted to write about um, F. Scott Fitzgerald I thought of writing about. So there were a lot of people I thought about writing about. But I just kind of thought this project would just go on forever. I could see it kind of infinitely unfolding. And I, and I couldn't write about everybody. And these people were people who, it's hard to explain what the decision making was because I was kind of like felt this instinct about them. And they were all people who had thought and written a lot about death and were themselves sort of preoccupied with the subject. And they were people who I just had a feeling and their work occupied a sort of place in my kind of cosmos where I felt like they had something to say to me about that subject. And if I looked into their lives, they all had very different styles of dying. So I kind of wanted to investigate these different modes of approaching death. But that was why those particular ones suggested themselves. And they were sort of each answering questions I had in their own way. And what did you hope to learn by looking at the way that these writers wrote about and approached death and indeed died? What did you hope to learn about it? Well, you know, when I started out the book, I kind of had this idea that I wanted to like understand how you could, I guess the real question is like, how can one bear the idea that you're dying? How can you face this moment? How do you manage it? You know, how is it even possible to die in a way? And I felt like I wanted to understand this subject. But then I realized that later, I kind of came to understand that what I really wanted was to see it, to see these deaths up close, to really focus in on them. And I know that sounds really strange. It sounds kind of voyeuristic, and I think it is a little voyeuristic. But the idea was really, I think it had to do with facing this thing that you're really terrified of. And Maurice Sendak, who's one of the people I write about, has a letter. And he talks about going to visit a family friend who's dying and how terrified he is of this visit and how upset he is. And he doesn't want to do it. And he's miserable and he avoids it. And then finally, he goes to visit this woman. And he says, you know, I, I was like, I looked into this face of something that scared me. And oddly, it was beautiful. And it, there's something about facing something you're terrified of that's sort of exhilarating. And that in the end, you know, it just sort of is okay, you get kind of a strength out of just looking at it. So I think, you know, in a strange way, what I really wanted to do was look at something that I find very, very difficult to look at. 
So let's talk for a little bit about how you approached writing the book then. So you've already said that you know, obviously did a lot of research, but that also included talking to people, having long conversations with friends and loved ones and acquaintances of these writers. Yes. And I actually was really uncomfortable with that aspect at first because I am more comfortable kind of reading people's diaries and memoirs and letters and kind of the scholarship aspect where I really go deeply into their papers. So sitting in a library is very easy for me, but actually calling up a stranger and saying, you know, do you want to talk about your mother's death seems like a very strange thing to do. And I felt like it was really evasive and I was really apologetic and I would write them these emails like, I totally understand if you don't want to talk to me. (laughs) And I was kind of basically, frankly, terrible at this form of journalism. And then to my enormous surprise, most people did want to talk to me. And even Martha Updike, who had not talked to any biographers before, was willing to talk to me, John Updike's wife. And I found that people actually wanted to talk about the subject kind of in the same way as I wanted to talk about my own father's death, because there's something, there's not really a space to endlessly discuss this very disturbing subject. In a weird way, it's easier to talk about with a stranger than a, someone you're close to. And so I actually ended up having these great conversations. I talked to night nurses, I talked to friends, I talked to lovers, I talked to wives, ex-wives, children. And they really were incredible conversations. And I felt like I, this late in life, have discovered this, you know, new form of understanding the universe. So it it was really, that part of it was great. And the research was difficult, you know, sort of arduous because of the nature of the subject, but also um, kind of incredible. And it occurred to me, just as we were talking about that, that of course, I mean, you you could write about a writer dying or a person you can experience dying but none of us can actually really experience death it's the people around us that experience that death exactly and i mean as freud points out somewhat intriguingly we can't even imagine our own deaths like if you imagine your death you're a spectator you're sort of like still there it's literally impossible for us to like imagine the annihilation of our consciousness And yeah, so a lot of this story is the story of the caretakers and the survivors and the people who are, you know, kind of hovering around at the end. And one of the things that's interesting about it from the point of view of writing biography is just everything comes rushing in at the end. So it's this incredibly rich way of approaching somebody's life. You really get their whole life in there. You have like John Updike's ex-wife is holding his feet through the sheets at the end of his life. You have everybody's there. Um, and even if they're not there, there's sort of, you know, there's some issue about their, their not being there. So sort of everything is present and kind of everything comes rushing in. So it's, it's a very intriguing period of life from the point of view of a biographer. And just one other thing about the book itself before we move on to look at, we'll go through all of the writers, but um, the book itself is written in sort of short passages, paragraphs, and then set out on the page. And it seems in some way appropriate for the subject matter. I don't really know why, but it seems like quite lyrical. I mean, was that obviously a a, a deliberate stylistic decision of yours? It definitely was a deliberate stylistic decision, though, like you, I'm not sure why. I just realized that was how I was writing it in my, you know, kind of rough draft. And then I sort of thought, actually, this is how it should be in the actual book. And I remember having that conversation with my editor where like, I want to skip a line between each paragraph and have it be, you know, separated in that way. And I think part of it is because the book is, there are these fragments and it kind of fits the mood. One of the things I was doing with the title as well was just trying to kind of capture the mood of these final hours, which is sort of, you know, the violet hours, like both sad, 
it's the end of the day, but it's also kind of exciting. And it's also kind of, and I, and I felt somehow the fragments captured the mood of this moment and the way people might be thinking at that time. I'm Eric Schlosser, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Let's look at the writers then. So you start with Susan Sontag. Now, you detail, obviously, Susan Sontag's final battle with cancer. And part of that, of course, is that she'd already been through cancer numerous times and had beaten it on numerous occasions. And that obviously dictates how she goes into this final battle. Definitely. Although I have to say also what dictates how she, she always viewed herself, even from the age of like 16, as exceptional. If you look at her notebooks, she always thinks that like the rules that apply to other people do not apply to her. She had this kind of concept of herself, this incredible will and this mythology that she was creating from an unbelievably young age. And that mythology involved, you know, not being like everybody else. And so the kind of exceptionalism or this conviction that she would be the exception was innate to her. It was like something that came really deep in her consciousness. And then, of course, was reinforced because when she had her breast cancer, especially in the 1970s, all the doctors were like, you know, you're going to die, basically. And she didn't. And so out of that moment came this kind of idea of herself as this kind of like this warrior who survives death. And, and what was interesting about that story, and, and obviously very, you know, heartbreaking or upsetting, is just that she was able to keep that stance that she was going to fight this cancer way past what would seem like a rational moment for that idea to fall away. She really, and that had real medical consequences. She had a bone marrow transplant at 71, which is, you know, already, you know, she sort of took this exceptionalism into this really harrowing treatment that had almost no chance of working. And um, she really subjected herself to what her son called and others around her called torture. Um, and they used that word torture because she believed like she wasn't really going to die this time. And and I think that's a common feeling, you know, that we, we sort of all believe we're immortal in some way. You know, you just, it, it's very hard to actually accept the idea that you're really going to die and that you're going to die this time of this illness is even harder to accept. And indeed, she seemed, I mean, you mentioned her exceptionalism, but she seemed almost on a few occasions contemptuous of people who did die. Like she definitely had this idea that she was never going to die. Is she? Yes. She, um, she really, well, I mean, obviously she wasn't insane. So she <laughs> knew she was going to die, but she did take a certain pride in this conception of herself. And I think she did also have a kind of like, she definitely had a contemptuousness for ordinariness, like ordinary people. She would, she used to make fun of this friend of hers because he had health care and he had a savings account. And she was like, you know, intellectuals don't have health care and a savings account. Like she just found kind of like ordinary, you know, middle class life kind of beneath her in a lot of ways. But I think that she really did feel invested in at least the idea of fighting disease and of fighting no matter what. And I don't have a moral judgment about it because one never knows how you will feel in that in that moment. But it was part of her personal mythology that she was, 
she would behave this way. Well, that's, it's interesting that you know she wrote the book Illness as Metaphor, and and she argued in terms of healthcare for like a rational, informed, and educated approach to illness. Put that together with this idea of her being this warrior who, who is always going to fight. Her end is is it's as far from rational as you can get, really, isn't it? Yeah, I know. Well, that's the irony because she she sort of talked about how she in illness this metaphor she really makes the case for being rational and logical and you know solving the problem and taking what science has to offer without all the fantasies and the overlay of you know imaginative overlay that our culture bequeaths us but she was sort of unable to do that at the end she really wasn't able to assess the situation rationally and logically and you know if there was a lot of fantasy and imagination and you know indeed metaphor at work in her own death and it, you know in a way it's she just was unable to take that. And I, and I think that's, you know, one of the most, it's, to me, it's one of the most brilliant books of the century. I really um, love that book, but it just, she was unable to take that message and that wisdom into her own life. And she really couldn't live her death without metaphors. Um, And it is, it's interesting to think about that because a lot of the ideas that you have often don't play out at the end or you can't necessarily, you know, this is sort of a moment where things get beyond one's control. And so to me, you know, the fact that she was not this kind of like perfect thinker who took her ideas and deployed them at the end is, is you know, kind of interesting in what it says about people in general. You've already alluded to the idea that her various battles with illness sort of played into the public myth of, you know, the public persona of Sontag. And it occurred to me as well that w- when you are that person who is sort of managing that myth, that obviously is going to have something to do with how you choose to die as well and how you present that. And you've got like, you know, Annie Leibovitz taking photographs of her all for her illness and after she dies and things like that. And that's, you know, that's obviously not a consideration that most people have to have to think about. True. Yeah, it's a little unclear with those photographs, you know, what her level of participation was in them, which was part of people's objection to them. Um, I myself think she would have been okay with those photographs, but I don't know whether that's actually, I mean, I, I, she let, she definitely in her previous cancers had wanted Annie to document them in a kind of graphic way. So, but it is true that most people aren't necessarily thinking in that way. Well, there's also obviously the management of the news of about how her condition is and how bad it is, which is sort of at the same time played along with this this idea that she's not necessarily believing or, or wanting to accept how bad things are. And they're managing the news out to various literary people that it's not quite as bad as it seems. Right. And, and I mean, you know, to a certain extent, I think a lot of the people around her were caught in the kind of power of her personality and they were acting according to what they believed she would want. So there was this narrative that she was fighting the illness, even after the bone marrow transplant had failed. And there was actually, you know, she'd gone back to Sloan Kettering for some experimental drugs, but there was really, she was really not going to live. And that was clear to everyone around her. But they were still acting according to what they thought were the imperatives of her desire. So they felt like she would want to have the message to the world and to, you know, the editor of the New York Review of Books and whoever else, you know, the sort of literary world to be she's fighting it. And so they were conveying a message that they knew to be untrue, but that they felt was her wishes. Now, and I, and I think one of the things that made a lot of people around her anxious was that they didn't know if those were still her wishes, because at that point, it may have been that they weren't. But the sort of this machine was set in motion by the kind of power and just 
a force of her desire to live and her, her kind of real uh, intense feeling that she was going to fight this disease. It was so powerful that, you know, a lot of people kind of fell into line with that idea. So how did it go in the end? Well, I mean, I think it was a very harrowing death. I think it was, I mean, many people use the word torture. It was a really arduous way to die. And many of the people around her kind of had had a fantasy that she could go home and, you know, not be in the hospital and not, and just sort of let it go, you know, in with people who loved her around her. And that did not happen for her. And obviously, I, I mean, I think, you know, it's, a lot of people have said to me, like, they read that chapter and they were like, this is how not to die. Like, here is like how you don't want to die, which I have to say, I sort of agree with. I, you know, in on some level, I look at her kind of way of looking at it. There's something heroic in it or there's something you have to sort of admire this fierceness. But at the same time, it just seems terrible and, you know, terrible for everybody. Well, let's move on to Sigmund Freud. And I mean, really opposite to Sontag's idea that she was exceptional and she was never going to die. Freud believed, you know, in his, his idea of the death drive, that everybody wishes for their own death and wants their own annihilation. Yeah, he sort of talks about how, like, life is like this balance between both our desire to, our will to live and our a kind of pull toward death and the sort of balancing of those two things. And he had an idea of heroic clarity which he talks about about like really facing death and kind of like when Christopher Hitchens wrote in his memoir that he wanted to stare death in the eye with very Hitchens and in that kind of concept of really he wanted to kind of analyze things and he wanted to work right until the very end which is something common to a lot of these people I was writing about they really wanted to keep working and their work kind of was very important to him And, and he actually died he wanted to die when he couldn't read when he finished his book, strangely, and he had a personal physician who um, basically helped him die when he wanted to die, when he decided it was time. So he really did even get to control that moment in a way that most of us don't. And he also wouldn't take any painkillers. He didn't want to take painkillers. He only took aspirin, nothing strong. And all his doctors were trying to urge him, you know, because he was really, it was in a lot of pain, but he wanted to think clearly and he was very committed to that idea. Yeah, I wanted to say that there's a sort of paradox with him not wanting to take painkillers because he wants to keep his mind clear. He wants to carry on working, which is obviously, you know, obviously makes it more painful for himself. But also this fact that he, you know, he insisted on carrying on smoking. He's obsessed with his cigars, but his cigars are central to his work as well. So they're vital for him to be able to carry on working. And despite the effect that that's obviously having on his illness and in the most visceral way... (laughs) Yeah, I was very interested. Part of what I did in that chapter was really analyze that question of why did he keep smoking? Because his doctors were telling him to stop smoking very early on. There was even a written medical report that was given to him. And he was a doctor and he considered himself very rational. And he was a very good patient in nearly every other way. He was like a docile patient and obedient patient, except in this one question of smoking. And, and you know, some of it was obviously the addiction but another part of it, he he really viewed smoking as this kind of thing that was outside of of rational thought. And he would tell his other analysts that they couldn't talk about his smoking because it was like a topic 
that wasn't allowed to be analyzed, basically. He said that in his Jewishness, interestingly. But he also, yeah, he, he wrote to one of his biographers that he had presented a too bourgeois version of him. And he was like, you know, think about my smoking. So he viewed his smoking as like this wildness, this expression of himself. And it was, and he smoked while he worked. It was very important to him to be smoking while he worked. So he viewed it as this kind of creative, wild, passionate part of him. And I think also one can't deny this, you know, the sort of death instinct at work at a certain point when it, when it became clearer and clearer and clearer, it was just really making this cancer worse and worse and worse. And, you know, with this particular throat cancer, it's just particularly important that he not smoke. And he just kept doing it. And he, not just that he couldn't give it up, but he, that he wouldn't, that he wanted to keep smoking. He was kind of positively, passionately committed to it. And I found that very, very interesting especially in light of his own, you know, writing and thinking about death. And so again, let's talk about how, how it finally comes to an end. Well, he, he read the last page of his book. He was reading a Balzac book and he was really, really in bad shape and really awful for him. His dog, he had this beloved dog who wouldn't go near him because the dog sort of sensed, you know, the kind of like rotting skin. And this is a really horrible illness. And the dog kind of sensed the death and fled from it, which was incredibly upsetting to him. And as he often had said, you know, dogs can't be ambivalent, like they're not fake, they're not hypocritical, they, you know, they really do what they do and act on their feelings. And, you know, so he, he, he asked his daughter, who was the closest person to him, you know, and she finally said it was okay. And, and he took some morphine and he's drifted off. Um, the doctor gave him, administered it. So he really had the death that he wrote about, which was about, you know, where he talks about how an organism wants to control its own death. And he really did, to the extent possible, control his own death. He chose the moment. And um, he was very concerned with not fighting against it or like raging against death, or he didn't have any of that denying it, none of it. He was very, very committed. And when other people would deny his death, he got really angry at them. So he really wanted to accept it in this kind of scientific way. And it was, it was very important to him to do that. And, and he did achieve that to some extent in his own death. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny, and today I'm talking to Katie Royfe, and we're talking about her book, The Violet Hour, Great Writers at the End. And Katie, we're going to move on to John Updike now. And I think the thing that struck me first of all about the the John Updike chapter, unlike the two previous Sontag and Freud, was that I guess the severity of his illness takes him and his wife by surprise when it first becomes apparent, doesn't it? Yes, yes. He thought he had a flu or like a bronchitis or something or like just, you know, a cough. And he was sick for a while and he wasn't recovering. But, you know, and he was he was relatively healthy. And so when he got the actual diagnosis of lung cancer, it was really a shock. I was struck also by how this is a good example of how a death or somebody dying, his illness, affects his extended family. Let's talk about this, the family structure there. Well, he had a very complicated family because he had an ex-wife. And he writes about this in his novels, obviously. For, if you're familiar with his novels, you know many of these stories because he doesn't disguise a lot of it, some of it. He had four children with his first wife. And then he ended up having a second wife and she had her own children. So he had a massive family. And his second wife was a little bit, um, she was sort of a gatekeeper. She kind of um, watched over his time very carefully. And there was a lot of tension between his children and her, which kind of came to a head in the final week. Yeah, I mean, I was struck by how that, you know, the children wouldn't weren't able to visit the house like they would come for like the fireworks and then you know watch the fireworks from a beach and then leave and not actually go into the house for instance yes they definitely um especially some of the children had a sense that you know when he well one of them said when he would sneak out to see them it was like he he was going to see a mistress you know it's like this illicit visit and um so she definitely wasn't they did not experience her as as kind of welcoming in, them into the fold. So there was sort of an uneasiness in that relationship all along. Well, you said you spoke to Martha, his second wife, for the book, which might actually surprise people who read it because of you know how she how she comes across. So how was that? Well, she um, viewed herself as protecting his time for his work and then later in his life she he was very weak and she needed to preserve his energy and take care of him so she saw herself as as you know serving his interests and protecting his time for his work and she 
she's very charming. She's very smart. She, you know, she was like Nabokov's favorite student. She um, has a lot of charisma and her, you know, I, I was interested, obviously, to talk to her partly because she was really the person there. So a lot of what happened in those final weeks, you know, only she knew. So, uh, and she, she really um, felt that she was acting in Updike's best interest and, you know, kind of protecting him and protecting their, you know, time. There's a particularly sad scene where Mary, his first wife, visits him in his in his sick bed and then leaves and doesn't get to say the things she wants to say because she thinks she's going to come back, but then isn't allowed to come back. Yeah, and she also didn't want to, she, she didn't want to say, admit to Updike that he was dying. So she didn't also that, but, and yes, she definitely thought she was going to have another chance to visit and she felt, and also... Martha stayed in the room for most of the visit, except she left to take a phone call, but she was sort of standing there and she wanted her to come with one of her children, which she did. So she was unable to have like that last time alone with him that she had wanted. Um, and it was kind of, you know, she talks, as I mentioned before, about, about holding up Dyke's feet through the sheet. But and I did find this was a very common theme of people just wishing that they had, she said she had questions that she wanted to ask him and that she only he could have answered. And I, I felt like a lot of the people I talked to for the book really had a lot of this last conversation in their head that they wanted to have where everything is resolved or forgiven or there's sort of this idea that things are going to be, you know, there's going to be this kind of closure and this ending that's very satisfying. And in fact, there rarely ever is. And it just both logistically, it doesn't come to pass, but also because people don't you know, there isn't that moment where you just suddenly are clear-sighted and generous and you say what you need to say. Like, it just, life doesn't really bring us that very frequently. Now, you said Martha's obviously, you know, a gatekeeper of his time. One of the reasons for which is that, you know, he is still working. He's also wishes, as you mentioned about the writers we talked about previously, to continue writing right up to the end as far as he can. And he does. And indeed, he basically comments on his illness through his poetry, doesn't he? Yeah, and his his last book of poems, the reason I included him in the book is I was so um, moved and astonished by the last book of poems end point because he really just narrates death. And he, he talks about how he worries that, you know, he's not like his younger self. He doesn't have news to bring anymore as an older writer in one of his essays. And, you know, suddenly he again at this last at this deathbed has news to bring and you can feel the kind of energy and the writing. And it was pretty amazing because right after he gets a diagnosis, he's really depressed and he has to choose covers for his last book from Knopf. And he just, he's like, I don't even care. And his wife was really alarmed because he always cared about things like that. And he was just like, he didn't care about the cover. But then the next day he woke up and, you know, right after this horrible diagnosis and he asked her for a scrap of paper and she handed him that cover you know, this draft of the mock-up of the cover from the publisher, and he just turned it over and started to write a poem. And if you look at the poems, um, which I have, the manuscripts, it's like his handwriting itself really tells the story of how hard it was for him to get those poems out. He really was very, very weak. And he just forced himself to. And, and Martha tells us, told me a story about how he puts his head on his typewriter and he just says, I can't do it. And she's like, yes, you can, you know, one more book. And that's the inscription in the poems. He writes just one more book. It's for Martha because she said it's a reference to that conversation. And it was really, really hard for him to even sit up and type those poems 
but they're incredible because there there's something about how close he comes and how how willing he is to just sort of honestly narrate this usually undiscussed stretch of life and and they are really um incredible and he he was writing them um for the absolute you know right up till he absolutely couldn't couldn't do it anymore moving it on to Dylan Thomas, the next writer. And again, different here from the previous three writers that we've been talking about, in that although he's he is quite clearly ill, he can't he can't have been under any illusion that he wasn't ill, but his death is is quite sudden. It comes, you know, pretty much in the street rather than in a hospital bed. Well, he actually did die in a hospital bed. Well he dies in a hospital bed, but you know what I mean. He has no awareness of that. <laughs> no. And it was, I mean, he was 39 years old also. And the question of whether he knew he was dying is, is very complicated because he talked so much about himself as dying. You know, I mean, if you think about even his poetry from a very young age was obsessed with the idea that he was dying. You know, he viewed himself as like, I'm going to be like Keats and die when I'm 34. You know, he, he always, he used to cough and he, he was, he loved his cough. He was really proud of his cough and he thought it made it seem like he was like, you know, cool and consumptive. So he had a kind of romance of that. And he also, I think was, he had written a postcard about, you know, being killed by, scalped by bourbon, you know, killed in America by alcohol, you know, which kind of is what happened to him. So he kind of it's very hard to know whether it was totally a surprise. And it can't have been totally a surprise because of kind of how recklessly he was sort of hurtling toward this death. But um, the moment he actually died was, you know, and, and still quite mysterious. I mean, they don't know exactly what it was that killed him. And yeah, I mean, it seems to be that, you know, this he's included here not because of the method in which he died, but in how he lived. I mean, he is that final week. He is really raging against the dying of the light. Yeah. And also I felt like his writing, um, you know, it's a kind of like I sang in my chains, like the sea. You know, his writing really captures the idea of living with the idea of death. You know, both this great, like almost overwhelming life force and at the same time, this like knowledge of death, this awareness of death. And he kind of always lived his life like it was the last night on earth. And so that kind of excess, that kind of overliving and over, you know, too muchness of his life was really informed by the fleetingness of it, you know, by just this this kind of overdeveloped sense of being about to die. And and I guess that was part of what intrigued me was that he kind of pitched his life in that space with this like sense that everything's about to disappear. And his death takes place quite publicly. There's this extraordinary scene in the book where he's, you know, he is finally lying in that hospital bed and there's like half of New York's literary scene in the in the waiting room outside. Yeah. Yeah. No, and people were really interested in it you know there were all these rumors that he died because he pricked his eye on a thorn it was like it was a kind of obsession of of that period there's also this um story of him being tell us the story of him being trailed by the private detective oh and then he had been in a suing time magazine because he claimed that they were libeling him because they kind of called him like a drunken womanizer and of course he was a drunken womanizer so his libel case was weak but um, Time magazine had employed a private detective to follow him around in these last weeks. It's almost like an unbelievable detail. But this, so this 
detective was following around to bars, to White House Tavern, to place after that, and writing down things he said, and also writing down how much he drank, and writing down he took a Benzedrine, then he did this. So he was writing down all these details of who he was with and what he was drinking and all of that as sort of proof for the case. But so his notebook still exists, this detective's, um, with all of that information. And even some of the conversations he was having, which were pretty despairing. And so that is just an unbelievable detail, obviously. But also in this question of like, it almost feels like there was a crime, you know, it gives the whole thing this kind of atmosphere of, you know, a murder, um, which is, you know, kind of amazing. Tom Barbash, and you're listening to Little Adams, a radio show about ideas and culture. The last of the five, Morris Sendak, then. So here's another unconventional family. There's Morris and, and Jean, his partner of 50 years, and then and Lynn and Jonathan, other people that have they've sort of adopted, I guess, <laughs> in some way. So tell us about this family structure. Well, right. So Maurice had his male partner, and he had been uncomfortable with being openly gay for a, a long time, but they were together for, you know, decades and decades. And then they sort of, one of his partner's friends died. And so her son sort of became their son. Um, and so they had this son, Jonathan, kind of. And, um, and then they had even more unusually a woman who was kind of came to live with them at age 16 and she was their housekeeper she was sort of their caretaker. She would cook things for them. They, she'd make cakes, but she would also drive Maurice around. He didn't like to drive. She would shop for his clothes. She sort of was, and so when she was young, she was, it was kind of like she was their daughter, but she was their housekeeper. And then she became um, irreplaceable. She had to do everything for them. And she was sort of, certainly by the end of his life, his kind of like best friend, his companion, his caretaker, his mother, his like ideal mother, she was everything to him. And so the relationship, I mean, she was almost like the perfect writer's wife, because she made no demands on him. And she lived with them, she got married briefly, and then, you know, and, and adopted a child. But she basically lived with them her whole life. And um, she you know, almost impossible to put into words, you know, what she was to him. Um, and it was she didn't, criticize him or she didn't want things from him she just she really took she was kind of took care made sure that he was able to do his work which was also very you know the only thing that mattered to him was just conditions had to be right for him to do his work and she just made sure that happened and she really protected his space and ability to work in this incredible way and this kind of unbelievably generous person who just you know loved him and devoted herself to his work. Now, all of these writers that you've chosen tackle death in their work, but perhaps none so much as Maurice Sendak does, which is an interesting thing to say, considering he's the one that writes books for children. Yeah. Well, when you think about it, most children's books are about death. This is true. <laughs> Alice in Wonderland, 
and um, you know Charlotte's Web. All our great children's books were really all about death. But he really believed that you know children were already afraid, and like it wasn't didn't help them to like protect them from their fears. You know, he really didn't believe in innocence. He believed that like what children wanted was to see all their fears and anxieties like played out in a comic way and like made funny and made engaging. And so he really, um, he wrote kind of about these terrors. And, you know, his idea is that children protect their parents from what they know. You know, they pretend that they don't know things they know because they don't want to upset their parents, which I think is very true when you think about it. Um, And he really was unbelievably obsessed with death. He actually owned Keats's death mask um, in his house. You know, he, he was just uh, unusually concerned with and obsessed with death. And he, he just worked his way through these deaths and kind of wrote all kinds of comic resurrections. And he sort of wrote and drew his way through these, this problem of death um, that just, you know, obsessed him uh, and did draft after draft after draft. Uh, and it's, it's just kind of um, amazing to see his work because he, it, because he also was so imaginative. And so, you know, he really had this incredible, you know, artist's gift. And, and at the end of his life, he also just wanted to keep drawing. He, I mean, let's talk about that obsession with death that he had. Like, he'd obviously, he'd lost a lot of family members in the Holocaust, for instance. He also, coincidentally, Dylan Thomas, had a he had a heart attack at 39. So he'd had a brush, you know, brush with death. And he was sort of, it seems, throughout his life, surrounded by it as well, wasn't he? Yeah, he, and he also had, like, his beloved dog died. He was very close to his dogs, his parents. He also was very sick as a child and thought he was going to die. And he also watched a kid, one of the kids in his like Bensonhurst neighborhood, um, you know, there was a ball, he threw a ball and the kid ran out in the street and was killed by a car. And he watched that happen as a child. And the key, the way he, he talked about it, the kid sort of flies up in the air and he sees him flying up in the air. And then later in his work, he'll draw, if you think about it, like all, there's all kinds of flying and floating children, you know, who have their arms out, but the flying and the floating becomes sort of like you leave this world in a kind of fun and beautiful way, not, you know, you're being killed by a car. So he took that really traumatic moment and refigured it, you know, and over and over again, there are these flying little boys. And you can think about in the night kitchen, Mickey tumbles down the house, you know, into this alternate universe. And it's kind of like they're turned into this more benign kind of flying when really what it was, was, you know, another thing. So, and, it, you know, he take his parents, you say to him all the time, like, you're lucky you aren't, you know, cooked in the ovens of the gas chambers, you know, because it was that period of right post Holocaust. And he has like a kid being baked into a pie by these evil bakers, one of whom looks a lot like Hitler, you know, with these Hitler mustaches. And then he pops out of it. And he kind of turns all these stories into, you know, and the heart attack also really affected him, you know, so the idea of coming back to life was something that he played with over and over again in his work. And he's with Jean, his partner for around 50 years. And then, of course, Jean dies. Mm. And Semnick really interestingly, he did this thing, which some people think is strange, but I completely understand. He, he drew him. So after Jean died, he asked Lynn to take photographs of him so he could draw him dead. 
you know, kind of like creating a death mask. And he drew his, his family members um, before, right before they died. He wanted to draw them dying. And it's this really strange impulse, and a lot of people think it's morbid or something, but I think it's, it's really understandable. It was kind of like Annie Leibovitz taking the photographs of Sontag after she died. That idea is very Victorian of preserving this moment of death and really like looking at it. Obviously, I myself am interested in doing that too. So he really wanted to preserve that moment of when they were dying. And let's talk about him dying then. So... I mean, he's obsessed with death and he's worried about death, but it seems perhaps, well, perhaps on a par with Updike's perhaps, that Sendak's death in this book is, if we're going to say Sontag's is the way not to die, then this is probably the way to die. He has, uh, one thing I love is that he had a dream when he, um, he had a dream a week before he died and to know, understand the dream, you have to know that he was he was very eccentric. He was terrified of snow. He hated it. He was terrified of it. And he called snow um, the white death. He hated it so much. And he would, like, make Lynn go out and, like, get the snow off the roof with a broom. I mean, he just thought snow was going to kill him. And he also hated Christmas. He hated everything to do with Christmas. So when he was dying, he had this dream, and he was in the hospital. He told Lynn he had a dream. Lynn was lying on a divan, like a giant divan. She was lying down, and behind her was this beautiful backdrop. And he did a lot of opera backdrops, so it was like an opera backdrop. And on the backdrop was this snowy Christmas scene. It was like a Dickensian Christmas village scene with, like, horse-drawn carriages in the snow. He was like, Lynn, this was the most beautiful, radiant dream. And she said to him, but Maurice, you hate snow and you hate Christmas. How could this be a good dream? And he was like, no, no, you don't understand. It was the most comforting dream I've ever had. And, you know, it was really incredible because she realized, and I think it's true that he had turned, he had managed just through his imagination to take these things that were most, that he hated the most and was terrified of, like the white death, it's almost too Freudian, um, of snow and of Christmas. And he turned them into something beautiful and it was like the snow painting I think kind of encapsulates this incredible power of the mind to kind of console itself and later I would talk to James Salter and he he used the phrase I told him that story and he said we make our own comfort and I really thought that was exactly what it was it just he made his own comfort and he really came around from raging against death in his own way he used to say he wanted to have a yummy death as was his phrase like William Blake he was an incredible talker and incredible writer um and he wanted to have a yummy death and like you know he just kind of created that for himself you've already mentioned where we're going next so we've talked about the five writers whose deaths you talk about but then there's a final chapter where you talk to James Salter so let's talk about why that's in the book well, I wanted. To, I, I thought I, I. I wanted to talk to somebody who was alive. Like I, I, in my mind, I thought I want to talk to somebody who's a writer who thinks and writes a lot about death, but then has not yet died. And so I, that sort of natural person is James Salter, whose work I just love. And he was eighty nine, and thought I could go and talk. It was obviously very weird for me to write to him and say, "Do you want to talk about death?" Because you're eighty nine. I mean, it was just beyond the pale really but he agreed again to my surprise and we had an, a great conversation and kind of like one of the most memorable conversations of my life and so that was in there and then even stranger it had not occurred to me that he might actually die before the book came out because even though he was 89 he seemed so vital and healthy and he was going off to teach and 
I just, I honestly, my publisher called me to say, you know, James Salter died and I, and I couldn't believe it. I was like, drop the phone. I was, it was like astonishing to me, just had not occurred to me. So by the time the book came out that next summer, he died. And even more strangely, he died of a heart attack, which we had was kind of the way of dying that we talked about most in the chapter. So it was really, um, strange and, um, kind of like otherworldly that it this happened that way now his both his life both his private life and his his work his writing was infused with death but he surprised you by saying that he didn't much think about it yeah at first he was like well he was sort of very you know kind of world war ii generation even though he didn't actually fight in world war ii he was a little late for that but he really didn't want to talk about it even though he created all it. So it's kind of like why I never think about death. But then later he, he kind of revealed in the course of the chapter that he did actually think about death. But he originally told me he didn't. And one of the things I kind of got from him, he also had a horrible thing that happened where his 28-year-old daughter died, like in his arms, practically in front of him of a horrible accident. And he just did, never wrote about that. And he didn't want to write about it. And he sort of said there's some things like, one can't write about and, and kind of by extension talk about. And I did get from him this message of like, there's sometimes that you have to kind of turn away from this subject. And that was, you know, one of the things is that he kind of, we talked about not thinking about death and not looking at death, which was sort of a new um, idea for me in the research of this book. All of these writers are of that generation where they've lived through through the wars and indeed you know you talk about Sigmund Freud escaping the Nazis and Sontag um, spends time in Sarajevo while it's under siege the Sendak's family family uh, you know are, are destroyed in the Holocaust that's obviously a thing that then you know it's almost like you know thinking back to 19th century times when infant mortality was massive and people were surrounded by death and stuff and we're obviously not like that now. How are we going to cope with death if we've not, our generation, how, how will we cope if we've not experienced those mass things? Yeah, we haven't experienced those mass things. And even more importantly, I think, I mean, if you think about the 19th century, you know, you would see like your aunt die in childbirth. You know, you'd see like bodies being carried out of the house. A child would die of scarlet fever and you'd see their body being carried out of the house. Like we don't really have that anymore because for the most part, death is moved to hospitals. It's kind of like a curtain is drawn. We don't think about it. We don't look at it. And so you go through a lot of your life without seeing someone die. You can go through all of your life without seeing someone die. And so it's a subject that we are not forced to think about. And I think that fantasy that things can be cured and fixed. Like it just sort of pervades because of that. You know, we're not like confronted with it in this way. You're not seeing like, you know, obviously terrorism might be our new version of this because we do like occasionally have, you know, a bomb explode in a building now. But I think in general, we're not confronted with death in the same way as people have been in the past. And that just makes it easier to put the subject aside. And now, one of the things I've noticed talking about this book and like doing bookstore readings and that kind of thing is like people actually do like it's a subject you don't want to think about it. But then when people do think about it, they have a lot to say. And, I, you know, I had this experience interviewing people where they'd originally say they didn't want to talk to me. And then they would talk to me for like five hours. Then I like couldn't get them off the phone talking to me. And so it's kind of like there's a lot to talk about. But um, so I think some of why people want to talk about it and think about it. And there are a lot of books out about death now. I don't know if you've noticed, but there just seem to be a lot suddenly. 
when breath becomes air, when, I mean, just a whole, a whole spate of them just recently. And I think that it is because we do want to think about it, you know, in a way. And I think it is harder where this fantasy of everything being cured is more and more possible. You know, just that like, we don't, it's very easy to push out of one's mind. And one of the things I want to think about was also just, you know, thinking about death or being aware of it. And Freud writes about this is like, you know, sometimes he says like, that's what makes life beautiful. I mean, that there's something about being very aware of death that gives everything this like greater vividness and meaning. And so being really aware of death or thinking like you're about to die tomorrow, it kind of gives you, um, it makes everything more precious. And in that way, you know, it can be useful. You know, Susan Sontag wrote about how it was fantastic, you know, almost dying. Like when she survived her cancer, she gave this interview in the New York Times where she said that. And it was pretty incredible because she was, you know, obviously we don't normally think about that. And Salter talked about that to me too, just the exhilaration of, you know, being in the army and having people die around you and just being aware of life and its fragility. Um, and that's one of his great subjects, obviously. So I also am interested in how the idea of death or being, being okay with it in a way or thinking about it can actually enrich life. So is that, I mean, I was going to ask you, I asked you earlier what, what you expected to, to learn from this book when you were setting out on it. Would that, you think, be the takeaway, to sort of take away a lesson from having written it? I think it is, actually, yes. And I think it's a way of, like, like I don't, you can, obviously, it's very sensible to be afraid of death, and I'm not telling people they shouldn't be afraid of death, but I think if you can look at a death and be okay with it and see that it's okay and also just be, be thinking about it, it gives this more it it gives a kind of meaning and this beauty to the life around it so I do feel like that was um one of the important things that came out of the book for me do you think you look upon the the work of these writers differently having now studied their deaths um yes uh especially like I just well as one delves into the conditions you know of, of the work it really you know for instance Updike's last poems which I always thought were startling when I when I actually look at how hard it was for when I know now that I know how hard it was for him to get them down on the page they seem even more you know like amazing to me and I don't like now that I know that Sontag couldn't really take her own advice to heart that doesn't make me look at the book as less you know of an incredible document, but it does, it does sort of affect one's reading of it in some way, I think. I've been talking to Katie Royfe, and we've been talking about her book, The Violet Hour, Great Writers at the End. Katie, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with us. Thank you. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. The show is supported by 89up and hosted by Positive Internet. You can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our relaunch website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.